Hey, what's going on, American Contingency? I am here in the studio. Today, we have a special guest that you're going to get intimate and more familiar with as time goes on. Um, Doc Pete Chambers. Dr. Peter Chambers. Is it Peter? Can I say uh, that? You can say that. That's on the paperwork. <laughs> it's Pete. <laughs> it's Pete. Doc Pete. Uh, so uh, you guys are going to get a very short summary of a very extensive experience in life that seems like many. I mean, this is, I mean, if this was Benjamin Button, I mean, this would be a 10-hour movie. This is very much scratching the surface of a, a very important story up into the point you are now, right. uh, where we'll highlight some of the things that Doc Pete has been through and his experiences that apply to American contingency. But I encourage you to go to Phil Craft Survival Podcast and see the long podcast, the long form podcast that we did with Kevin Owens and Doc Pete in Montana. We were in Montana Correct. at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a good podcast because, man, um, it's going to read like fiction. Uh -huh. And I, I promise you it's not. Um, Doc Pete's one of the most vetted human beings on the planet because of his positions through government, military, and civilian service even. Um, but he... Let me give you a spoiler alert right, right up front. Doc Pete is going to be the OIC in charge of American contingency. Um, for me as a CEO of a company, trying to manage operations and all the things that Amcon is doing and progressing to in the future is very difficult. Um, there's not a lot of people on the planet Earth that I trust with American contingency. Doc Pete is one of few. Um, he stepped up. We talked about it in depth, and um, he's the guy. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of your history, Doc. You, right. You have, I mean, you're called Doc for a reason. Right. How, let's get to the point where you're going to med school and you right. become a medical doc. Where, right. where did that all derive from? My dad was a small-town doctor, believe it or not. Um, he, he started in, in Eastern Europe as a uh, partisan, World War II uh, Civil War in Greece. He was a teenager, uh, came to America on a ship legally, worked his way, became a citizen legally, uh, married my mom, you know, American. And so I'm, I guess you'd call it a half-breed. Mm. Uh, but uh, he instilled in me a love for this country and told me when you're 17, you will serve so that we can serve this country that gave us all the things that we have. Mm. He said, I don't care if they make you a street sweeper, you're gonna be the best damn one they ever saw. I became an infantryman. I did that for a while. <clears throat> uh, nothing was going on in the 80s. It's quiet. I wanted to go to ranger school, wanted to go to ranger battalion. It didn't happen. I broke my leg. Different course happened. Ended up getting out, going to college, going to medical school. Uh, because he was a doctor, I had that influence. You know, he became a doc. You know, he, he was an old, you know, partisan fighter. Uh, and there was the, always that influence, uh, helping people, doing something, being part of the community. Because I thought I could never go back to the military. I got plates and screws and bolts in my leg, you know, bad jump. Uh, I'll never be able to jump again. Went to medical school, went to residency, 9-11 happens. I'm like, I'm going back. I came to, the, uh, to a National Guard unit first and said, I want to be your doctor. I was doing police stuff, working for law enforcement as a, uh, as a SWAT doc. And uh, they were like, well, okay, come on. So I went to the uh, National Guard, actually in Utah. And that's where I started. And it brought me the beginning of that trail back to the military, uh, having already one honorable discharge 
Uh, it should have been dishonorable, but uh, anyway, no. Uh, had one one honorable discharge and uh, and uh, got out. I always say, you know, you got a good conduct medal because you never got caught. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that good conduct medal. Yeah. Um, you got to the point after nine eleven, like many people's stories, uh, mine included, trying to fight to get back in the military to serve because absolutely we're. I mean, I, I served in the infantry in the nineties. Um, but I actually had a break in service because there was no fight. <clears throat> uh, seven days later, uh, after my ETS, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, let me turn and burn. Let's let's get this done because uh, now there's a fight to be had. And you get back into the military and you're a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Did they put you back into that role or did you have to fight to get to a combat not at all not at all I I was very fortunate in that uh, I met the right people at the right time at the right place and uh, they put me in as battalion surgeon for a special forces battalion that was going downrange to Afghanistan early on however uh, it took me a little time to get in you know it takes a year process to get in as you know it's not easy I ended up going to Iraq instead they needed a job there for a special forces doctor to work there in Iraq well in Iraq I went Instead of going with the rest of the unit over there, they already had another doc. I ended up uh, outside of Baghdad, between Baghdad and Bayap, mm-hmm. uh, doing neighborhood advisory council clinics, setting up clinics for people. But soon found myself in the fight. 12 May 2004, IED, uh, complex attack. I'm in the fight. Mm. not going to make a decision. Do I want to stay here or do I want to keep going out of the wire? I don't have to as a doc. Yeah. But there's 18 Deltas, medics, on teams, and sometimes they come and go. They get hurt. And I went and filled in for him and started doing stuff like that and being real proactive. Being a former infantry guy, I felt like I was an asset there, and they trained me up OJT. Mm. So, Doc, we want you there not kicking the door, but we want you close. Yeah. You can put your hands on somebody as quick as you can. Yeah, we want you close. And that's what happened. Mm. So I got identified early on as a proactive doctor, and my OER, my second OER, the surgeon, uh, lambasted me and said, you're way too close to all this stuff. And then the group commander came back and said, Doc, I'll tell you when to put on the reins. Stay out there. Guys love it. Yeah. And you've experienced, you've been a guy out there kicking that door. Yeah. So you were, you were an officer, I'm assuming captain? Captain. At the time? Right. And so you're an officer. And I already know how this, how this goes because I've seen a couple examples, including your own and third special forces group. Mm-hmm. But seeing these guys who come in, they're docs, they're battalion surgeons, and then you can't help special operations is in the fight, even as uh, enablers and service support, mm-hmm. because we have to be front loaded on the battlefield. Absolutely. And so you're already there. The opportunity for us to utilize you in, in any capacity is right. beneficial. And the group commander was all on board that. That's good Absolutely. to hear. Absolutely. And I came back, went to active duty, went to third group. Prior to that, I had put in a request to go to the Q course. Absolutely not. We don't send docs. That was my answer that I got. And, uh, that was general, that doctrinal at the time, or was that no, just No, it a, was not. Yeah. We created doctrine by yeah. going. Because yeah. what happened was I went to the USASOC psychiatrist, and he said, I resigned my commission on paper. I hadn't officially done it yet, but I had a piece of paper that said, I want to be an E5, uh, 11 Bravo, and go to the Q course. And they're like, oh, this is unheard of. Hold on. <laughs> well, the USASOC psychiatrist, uh, a guy named Bob, I'll save his last name, he's still in, uh, I went to medical school with him. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there at the like, USASOC headquarters, and he's like, come with me with this letter. We end up in the hands of General, well, then at the time, Colonel, I think General, one-star Mulholland. Yep. Big hands, big guy. Yeah. Sit down, Doc. 
what are you crazy? You know, we don't send docs. Give me a reason why. And I explained, well, sir, I've already been out there on the battlefield doing this in bad places. I've been wounded in combat. I need to know what you're doing and I can be more of an asset. Send me as an 18 alpha, let me go and I'll go as a captain. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But as far as a major at this time. Yeah. Now we got multiple waivers we're talking about. He thought about it. He came back and said, all right, we're going to start a program. We're going to send some docs through. You'll be the first. He said, for you, it's not caster tab. It's death or tab. Right? So it was always in my mind while I'm doing these things. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm training up. I'm getting ready. The guys are helping me out. I'm getting ready. I go to the Q course, smoke it at 45 years old Mm -hmm. doing selection. Smoke it. Matter of fact, the best compliment I ever got. I'm standing in the selection camp last week, team week, really, which is selection. Right? Team week. That's it. And I'm in front. And I'm standing there, you know, i got to count the guys, how many guys you got. I'm like, yeah. So I, I knew how to do that. I was an infantry guy. Yeah. Yeah, easy. And some kid comes up to me. I'm just number 33. You know, they don't know I'm a major. They don't know I'm a doctor. And I'm old. And this kid walks up to me and he says, hey, uh, are you like some kind of badass NCO from the Ranger Bat or something? We're trying to figure out, like, you're E8? <laughs> like, son, I said, that's the best compliment everybody gave me. Get back in formation. At the end, you'll know. That's awesome. So I didn't want to tell him, you know, yeah. doctor, major. Like, this dude's a spy. This right? dude's a, he's a Green Beret already. <laughs> I know there's cameras everywhere. I know they're watching. <laughs> Take your directions from the board. That's all I ever got. Uh, make selection. Make the Q course. It took me three times to get through. I was a heat casualty once, and I had a verbal altercation with a cadre one time on the uh, star course. Hmm. It happens. Yeah. Uh, he accused me of cheating. I wasn't. Yeah. But uh, I wasn't around the roads that, yeah. he, that he knew of. I uh, said I had a white light in her draw. And I was like, Sergeant, there's like 85 guys in that draw with white lights. <laughs> this is mine. It's red. Yeah. Anyway, recycled a couple times. I, so I, I understand, broke my clavicle, still had a ruck. I mean, it happens. Mm. But you, I, I, broke, I had a, a compression fraction, um, a fracture on the infill to Robin Sage. Mm. You know, but I wasn't going to quit because I knew, like, this is the end. Yeah. So my guys would pick me up off the ground with my 115-pound ruck. I'd go, okay, Doc, you got to finish this. <laughs> we want you. Best compliment, second best compliment, team sergeant at Robin Sage. He gets me, counsels me at, uh, counsels me at first. And he says, I don't know how you got here. You're a major. I don't know you're a doctor. I don't know you, but I'm going to treat you like any other 18 Alpha candidate out here. I'm like, best thing you do, Sergeant. At awesome. the end, he said, I would be on your team any day. Really cool. Right? Yeah. Fifth group guy. That's awesome. The Legion. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. That's another good compliment. So those are my two good compliments, more than any other meadow I could get, you know, for, you know, making my bed. So those, those are, that was my experience. That's how I got really vetted in the community. Yeah. Which allowed me to do other things. Third group. Yeah. Bravo company. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand the culture that we operate in. Even today, running a company very separate from the military our reputations in the regiment carry us in different capacities. Small world. It's very small world. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kevin Owens, for example, is going to the USASOC, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command sniper banquet because he used to be the non-commissioned officer in charge of sniper school. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they canceled the actual competition, but both me and Kevin Owens have competed in that USASOC mm-hmm. sniper comp and done very well. But our reputations in that wheelhouse is super important to us as individuals. It's not only a vetting mechanism for people. I don't care what people uh, think about me outside of the regiment, but the feeling for me is if the regiment thinks I'm doing well, um, and maybe that's some psychological 
deeply be- embedded stuff. Right. I, I feel good about the position I'm at in life. Right. Um, we, we've gotten it before, like, hey, you guys shouldn't be doing this. And oh, well, just because you're opinionated doesn't mean it's, it's a valid concern. Right. But that means a lot to us. Yeah. And the stories of guys like you were you didn't take no for an answer and you circumnavigated very in, in hindsight very minor things that uh, people look at it's like you took action that was the minor mm-hmm. the major is this big thing right it's yeah. difficult for people to wrap their head around but there's select uh, maybe top 10% of the regiment that's like you you know that's that's getting stuff done and they're taking no for an a- they're not taking no for an answer and they're moving forward no matter what it is i mean to de- debate a general about getting t- into the fight it's like that's the kind of guy I want on my team, right? You know, and and I'll, and I'll say thank you for that compliment. But I'm going to tell you that those those things that I learned, I learned back in 1983 from a, my drill instructor that was a Vietnam vet. He always said, "Never take no for an answer." You're starting at the top of a hill, you're you're water, and you're going down that hill, and you run into a rock, you're still going to get to the bottom of the hill. Yeah. And when somebody tells you no, you just say okay, which means I acknowledge that you said that, but I'm still going to get it done. Absolutely. It's that easy. That's what green, good Green Berets or good soldiers do. Right, period. good soldiers. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is you are currently in the reserve component Correct. of special operations uh, as a lieutenant colonel, mm-hmm. which people who don't understand rank structure, lieutenant colonels and special operations are battalion commanders. Mm-hmm. Um, you're actually in my old special operations reserve com- component unit um, that I used to be the sergeant major of and the ops aren't made rough. And you're doing that, but also you're a deputy sheriff in uh, not Oklahoma, but we're moving. Reserve. Reserve deputy sheriff. Going to transfer it to Eber City or Park or City. Park yeah. City. Yeah, Park City. Where does this idea that's deeply ingrained in you of service come from? In, in all capacities in life, My right? dad. My dad. Tell, when you're willing to, yeah. yeah, when you're willing to, uh, in your, let's say you're in, you're in a, uh, a Greek, he's Greek, he was Greek. When you're in your village and you have the option of not fighting evil and tyranny and all those things, you have the option of not doing it or going hiding in the hills. And you decide to fight. You decide to serve. And he lived through a situation where he was in a room and this was, he was a young kid. He's 11, 12 years old. And they were still out there helping the resistance, young kids, just like they do in Afghanistan. Mm. They say, hey, the Americans are over here or the Taliban's over here. We, we, those kids do that, right? He was doing that. And then in the Civil War against the communists, he did the same thing. He had an option. He had an option to, become, to come to America, become a citizen, work as an orderly in a hospital cleaning bedpans until some doctor said, hey, you're really good. Come here. Help me in this emergency in the emergency room. I need your hands. Mm-hmm. He had the option of doing that. And they supported him. He went to med school. Then he became a small-town doctor, and he's out doing house calls around the country in this podunk area. He had the option. He could have went to any other specialty that would give this uh, – pecuniary uh, boost, this financial boost of way more than some country doctor would make, Mm. but chose to do that because it's service back to your community. Mm. You know, it goes back to that. It's really, where's your your heart? Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean everybody has to do that, but there's some sort of either going to be an auxiliary or you're going to be a gorilla or you're going to be an underground, Mm. but you can do something. Yeah. And that's a lot of people who ask me, how do I find or source purpose in life? 
the default for me in my head is always serve your community. Mm-hmm. You don't have to serve the country because if you can't serve the country because of an injury or because, whatever it is, mm-hmm. serving your community, even serving your family is a means to the overall objective, which yeah, is absolutely. A, a great nation. And that's what I like about American contingency as a community because mm-hmm. there's this idea um, that can be put into action about serving your country. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, American contingency and kind of your role in everything that's moving forward. When when we started American contingency, the idea was from the get-go, we're here to serve our communities and be better prepared, more resilient individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, if we focus on the self by proxy, we're going to benefit our families, our communities. And there's this, there's been an idea for many people, uh, in even the national media for us, that that we're a militia, that we are an armed group of supremacists in various forms that want to do harm against people, and we're a threat. We've been seen as a threat. Mm-hmm. I, I constantly work on, up to this point, um, the messaging of. The education of this is not what this is. What do you think? One, what do you think that stems from? And two, what are the the farces and, and that kind of tactic mm-hmm. on the battlefield, which is you know unconventional warfare? Right. But this you know this goes into UW unconventional warfare one hundred and one stuff. There's a way to use information, either for the good or for the bad. You know that, and I know that. And we can turn anything into anything, and we can convince people in foreign countries in their language to overthrow either a regime or a tyrannical leader or a warlord, which is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. But we can do it. Yep. All right. So now what I'm seeing is this is happening on the obverse, on us mm-hmm. here. And when I say us, I don't mean us fieldcraft or American contingency. I mean us Americans, like good law-abiding Americans who get up every day and go to work and feed their families and do work. Like my motto is look for work, mm-hmm. look for it. It's CQB rule, right? I believe. And it's what we do. We look for work, but we go to work every day. We don't have time to go hold a sign and protest. Mm-hmm. You didn't see after this inauguration, the influx of uh, right-wing people or workers, let's just say people that work, go out because they had to go to work the next day. Yeah. We didn't see that. Yeah. And so that, that uh, disinformation campaign, if you will, uh, that we're supremacists, well, then you're an Asian American supremacist, and I'm a Greek American supremacist who lives in the Chickasaw Nation. Mm. Well, what's supreme about that? Mm. I don't know. We're just people. So that's what I look at. I don't look at. I have a son. I have two sons. One by blood, and the other one's an adopted son. He's he's black. Okay, I'm not a supremacist. I taught him that he doesn't need to be afraid of white people. And so there's a, there's this misunderstanding between us all sometimes that can be played somewhere. I don't think there's a conspiracy theory. I think there's a DNA that runs in certain people, maybe at the top or an elitist group that says, we can control them by. Mm-hmm. You know, Marx did this. Mao Zedong did this. All these leaders, uh, Ceausescu. These people, and if you study history, and that's why it's so important, if you study history, you'll know we're repeating that process. Mm. And we can stop the process by information that's, uh, like my son says, facts. Yo, dad, facts. Mm. Facts. I think that's spot on with 
I mean, I mean, there's a whole bunch of noise that we deal with from various in various forms. It's it's inherent to the the flaw that is people, which I think is just the routine that is people, right? People mm-hmm. being upset and whatever that is. Um, objective information and news, as we received it in intelligence and in information, led to us to be able to do operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that whole cycle and chain, right? right. Policy creates these intelligence requirements, and then that intel drives operations. And I I similarly look at what we are doing in a a similar fashion, meaning I I want people to get definitive, clear, concise information that best allows them to navigate their world. I don't mean uprise against their world. I mean navigate their world. Like you said, if we're waking up as Americans and we're working, which we should be doing, right? That's the benefit of this American dream experiment, which is we are gonna give you all the liberty and freedom to facilitate your own growth, and that's all on you. Mm-hmm. We've, we've regressed from that. We've started to plug in umbilical cords and depend on institutions, governments, um, and all the wrong things. And then looking at everything um, that's different as perverted. Like, I, we're teaching you self-reliance there's nothing perverted about self-reliance. In fact, that should not be an abstract thing. In, in fact, no. genetically, it's not. Primarily, it's not. No. I think when I, one, look at you as, as a, a leader and a manager of managing all the things that are American contingency, not only have you seen at the grassroots, in the dirt, um, mm-hmm. overseas, at war, in combat, uh, the tactical level play, but also the very broad 30,000 foot perspective in the strategic plan, right. and you get it. What are some of the things that you're gonna focus on moving forward for American contingency as your own priorities in right. managing the team? Okay, so day four right now with American contingency, it's been a fire hose, and we talk about that, you know, drinking from a fire hose. And it's just un- me understanding. So we call that a left seat, right seat, but I don't have a left seat to fall into, so I fall in under what you tell me directly. Mm-hmm. So I have your commander's intent, if you will, and then I understand that, and then I read and listen to as much as I can, and then I go, okay. So what my job is, as I see, is is kind of a conduit between the command, if you will, and the folks that are out there doing this, because we don't command them on anything of what to do. I say command to me, but not to them. Mm-hmm. We give them a, uh, a template mm-hmm. on what a good American does. And I don't need to tell a lot of these people. I've been on the phone with a lot of them lately. I'm going to meet with some in, in another state here uh, Friday night be through Sunday uh, in Texas, you know, I'll just say it. they're good Americans already, but how that they understand that we understand what they're feeling and they understand what we as uh, people with some experience in this and have a 50,000, 40,000 foot view are able to tell them through our intelligence uh, summaries, which are uh, open source. There's nothing that's OPSEC here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing hidden. You know, we, we don't run a sipper net. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what we do is we take real information facts. We go, here you go. Here's the facts. Mm. Stay away from this street in downtown, whatever town, because there's a riot going on. Mm-hmm. We want you to protect your family. Here's how to do whatever it is you need to do to survive. Mm. Whatever that is, you, 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 you run your operation down there, but let us help guide you. In land nav, we call it handrails and backstops. Mm. Let us supply that for you. 
and then also the conduit to us. And I envision, and this is something that we haven't even talked about yet, but uh, uh, the ability to, which we've already done locally, we've lobbied in a sense, local civic leaders to include sheriffs, emergency management directors, police department chiefs locally, grassroots up, but then hit the state levels. And then possibly eventually, I have connections on the Hill, go to the Hill and say, this is what we're saying. When we have 75 million Americans that are disenfranchised right now, of which there's a percentage that are actually gonna do something, what's the percent that you need to overthrow a government if you were to do that downrange? 5% of the population's buy-in. We have at least 5% that'll buy-in, not to overthrow our government, but to say that we wanna lobby to be heard mm. so that we can go to work, right? That's yeah. all we wanna do. Yeah. And protect our families and should, like where I'm from, a tornado hit, this town goes helps that town. Yes. Or when I went to Katrina, or when I went to Reed or Harvey in, a, in uniform and helped out people and saw chaos ensue so that people can take their chaos cup, which might be about this big, and turn it into a 55-gallon drum mm. and handle it because they have resources, they got battle drills, they have things that they can fall back on. And that's what I do is provide that, or that's what I envision. That's so important because there's this, there's this gap between... You know, people like us who understand the importance of having a constructive means in addressing things that are happening in your life, like mm -hmm. catastrophe and disaster. Um, even navigating passively life, people are having a difficult time. Right. And then the U.S. government or these institutions that have protocols and structure and task organizations, right. there's this massive gap that I think that we could help in educational reform and, and giving people even instilled value to understand. Right. I mean, I, I get more on the Philcraft side, even my personal side, of young men, even women, contacting me and asking me, like, hey, how can I be a better person? And I don't want a virtue signal that I am a, a great person because I, I don't judge myself, nor do I want people to perceive me as, as such. Mm -hmm. But that's how lost Americans are and trying to source their own understanding of the world around them mm -hmm. and their morals and their and their character right. and how to develop human beings and it, what, whatever that is there's many variables obviously there i think what this does is this allows some form of structure absolutely right a start point right. what, what i've seen is a, a social distraction and i would encourage american contingency members that are listening to this to, to not be distracted by the social um, disconnect of some people who just don't get it. Because uh, like when I, one thing I talked to you about is the fact that we have mended a two-way conversation. I like the engagement, but when it comes to certain things, our vision, our objectives and goals, that should be a disseminated one-way path, hence why I made it an LLC, hence why we're focused on the application, because we don't have time to socially engage with hundreds of thousands of people. It would bog us down and prevent us from doing good work. And the, my favorite thing about what you said, and we haven't even had that conversation, is the ability to forward think and act now on making real effective change. Change doesn't take place in the streets throwing bricks through no. windows. No. Change takes place by understanding how the government works and how best to get involved whether that's sheriff's buy-in, whether that's a combination of understanding local governance and how you could be a voice, but collectively, American mm -hmm. contingency can be that for every single community that it touches. 
And what I'm excited about it, man, you're you're the right. I mean, I got goosebumps uh, rolling from my neck to my hands. <laughs> you're the right human being for it, man. There, there's not. I mean, damn. There's not many people on this planet Earth who understands because we saw mm -hmm. uh, the things that we saw, the worst case scenario or the destruction of sovereignty, right? Americans don't want that. Mm -mm. It's ugly. Yeah. Antifa, no. BLM, uh, Proud Boys, these groups that want to disenfranchise <clears throat> people and, and cause destruction, you don't want that. More likely you'll lose and less likely we'll have a chance at a future if we're taking that approach. Yeah, um, I love that. Let me, let me ask you this, uh, closing out a little bit. Um, you, you have a Native American uh, heritage as well, and there's, there's something so raw and pure about that. I don't know what it is because I don't have that. There's something maybe on the Genghis Khan side of, of my DNA, but there's something very primal about men like you that it, people gravitate towards but want to be more like. And I know it's hard to talk about yourself in that sense. What do you think is missing in our country with the men in America? <sighs> and, and how do they grasp that? How do they, how, what's their start point for rolling in the right direction? All right, first of all, we're all tribes, no matter where you come from. Kevin Owens, the Irish tribe, right? It's tribe. We look at our fathers as role models, but it doesn't have to be your biologic father. Mm. I have a son that's I'm not his biologic father. You stand us next to each other, you're gonna know. JJ runs track for the university at university level on CAA. Great kid. Um, we need a role model. Mm. And I love something that you know Tim Kennedy's doing down there in Texas. Mm -hmm. Tim's in my unit now and, and you know him, MMA guy. He's starting a school, a charter school. I love that. Man. To mentor kids mm -hmm. and not to in influence them with politics mm -hmm. and all this other stuff, but how to be good people. Mm -hmm. That's what this is all about. Tim's got a heart. I've spent trips with him flying back and forth, and, and we've cried together over losing him. guys. I love him. You know, yeah. he's just that guy. But you look at him and as a persona on there, and you think he's crazy, wild guy. He is, but he's he's got that heart, and we have that heart because I know you and you know me, and so it's like it's all about humanity. But it, when you go, but you still got to be guarded sometimes. It's just like when I would meet Taliban leaders and take care of their families. You know, they'd send me into a village and go take care of family because we wanted to, to turn them into like, you know, not. Uh, and some Taliban leaders are more like mafia. You know, you know that. Mm -hmm. They get down on a border and they're just they just want to run stuff back and forth and make money. But they would send me in because I knew that I could understand people and I could speak the language and I could look the look and I could go in there, and I could get into their minds and say, what is it that you want? You just want to be treated like a human, and we just want to be treated like humans. And we could find a common ground and drop all the bull crap, you know, uh, false bravado, and just get to human side. So the tribes, when the Chickasaw tribe in Oklahoma talks to the Choctaw, there's no fight. But back in the day, there was a fight. They were one tribe, and they split mm. on the Trail of Tears. So we're at that stage now in this country where we're like the Chickasaw and the Choctaw tribe going to run down the Trail of Tears. Where are you going? Well, I'm going this way. Well, no, no, we're going this way. So there's a split, but really, we're still part of the same bloodline. We still have the same DNA. Mm. I'm a doctor. I'm going to tell you that right now. There's not a lot of difference between your DNA and my DNA and my son's DNA, JJ. There's just not a lot of difference. It's we're humans. Man, I'm excited about the future. Yeah. Um, we got a, a, a brief 
right after this where you're going to catch me up to speed on mm-hmm. on your objectives and goals as lined out by the vision that is American contingency. Um, we got Andrew, the app guy, he's in town. Um, he's doing the infrastructure piece first, and then we're focused on building out Amcon's app. Right. Um, we got you making the rounds. You got um, Dustin in the back on the ones and twos. Uh, <laughs> very important in the production piece. So much to look forward to, man, and I'm excited to have you on board. Um, Lieutenant Colonel, Green Beret, Doctor. Simple Country Doctor. Simple Country Doctor. That's it. That's where it starts. It's it's weird how all this talk and all the things that we're doing is just getting back to what we were mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Tribe. I like that, man. Mm-hmm. Th- thank you, Doc. How's that? Thank you. Thanks, thank you. guys. Thank you.